0: This is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally or spiritually gnaw on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. And I'm your host, Nate Vineo. This episode is Sins of the Father, Part 5.1, we'll call it, of the Handling Conflict King David-Style series. And in this portion of the series, it's more accurate to look at this in terms of not handling conflict, King David's style. In fact, I would even take it a step further and say not creating conflict, King David's style. And I will forewarn you, there will be at least two episodes on this topic of David as a father and his conflict with his children. But first, this story. Have you ever seen a rich family and thought it would be nice to have what they have? At the same time, have you seen a family that seemed to have so much tragedy in it that you do all you can to avoid them? Maybe it's as simple as doing all you can to avoid riding in the same car, even though you go to the same church or school. Or maybe it's as serious as refusing to ride in the same airplane because they seem to be cursed, and it's so obvious that you refuse to risk your life over the matter. Well, Joe's family is the intersecting point of both scenarios. Although Joe got into Harvard under dishonest circumstances, he graduated and became quite the businessman. He wasn't exactly an above-board guy, but he sure made money. He played the market in the world of speculation and manipulation long before it was illegal. In fact, his trading style was the type of behavior that caused the Black Thursday crash in October of 1929, the crash that ushered in the Great Depression, and he was doing so with the full knowledge of this probability. After all, his Harvard education probably taught him about this cause-and-effect dynamic. And as opposed to those who lost big in the Depression, Joe managed to do relatively well. During the early part of the Depression, in a severe case of irony in my opinion, Joe was appointed as the first director of the Securities and Exchange Commission around 1934. This is where the phrase, the fox guarding the hen house, fits unfortunately quite well. Joe moved on and had his hands in the real estate business and a movie production company in California. Joe had married, had nine kids, and three affairs that were referred to as open secrets. That is to say that everyone knew about him, but nobody dares say anything about him for fear of the power he wielded or the financial loss they may incur, or both. Joe had high ambitions for having his eldest son become president of the United States, Unfortunately, Joe Jr. died in a plane crash. Then his eyes shifted to son number two, and several years later, he would run for president. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Shortly after Joe Jr. died, Joe's eldest daughter, defying advice to not fly in a storm, died in that plane crash, in France, with her second husband. And then there's Rose Marie. Joe looked at her as a potential threat to the success of his plan to get his son elected president. She had some kind of mental illness that resulted in severe violent outbursts, and Joe felt that the mental illness card in the family would hinder his success. Consequently, Joe took the unilateral move to have a frontal lobotomy performed, and that is to say that it was without his wife's or the family's knowledge, and it went horribly wrong. The surgery left Rose Marie with the disposition of a two-year-old. Joe had her committed to a facility in Wisconsin and henceforth referred to her as being mentally retarded, apparently a better and more acceptable diagnosis, politically speaking, than mental illness. The lobotomy happened in the early 60s, and she died in 2005 of natural causes, a lifetime resident of a convalescent home. As Joe's bloodlust for political power continued, in addition to his business endeavors and in addition to his role as the director of the Securities and Exchange Commission, he served as an ambassador to England during the Roosevelt administration. And like a lot of things in life, Joe got another dream fulfilled, that of seeing his second son become president. On January 20th, 1961, John Fitzgerald Kennedy became president. And on November 22nd, 1963, he was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald. When JFK became president, he appointed his younger brother, also known as Bobby, as the Attorney General. And in 1968, Robert F. Kennedy, son number three, threw his name in the hat for the Presidency of the United States. And on June 6, 1968, he was assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan. At this point, four of Joe's children have passed away under unnatural circumstances. Son number four, Edward, became a long-running senator from Massachusetts and had a failed attempt at a run for president. In 1964, he did survive an airplane crash, but two others died in the accident. And I half wonder if he didn't die on account of his failure to become president. But anyhow, and if you want to take this curse idea one step further... Among several unfortunate events in the extended Kennedy clan history, in 1999, JFK Jr. meets his early demise when his plane crashes into the ocean just off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. And then there's that whole Chappaquiddick episode that I don't have time to go into. So if your last name is Kennedy and we're asked to drive somewhere together, please understand if I insist on driving or flying separately. When I was reviewing this story and studying David's life at the same time, I was struck by the parallel comparison. Certainly, it's not a 100% fit, but there are some dynamics that are scary. When David is confronted by the prophet Nathan about his affair with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite, Nathan does so by using a story about a rich man who stole a poor man's lamb. And a side note here. In the third edit of this, the irony finally hit me that this is a parable-style podcast using a historical story to highlight a biblical story in which the prophet uses a parable story to convey a convicting truth. This is crazy. We're working really hard here to get to this tough stuff without losing anybody. That's what's going on. Anyhow, David flies off the handle with a judgment that the offender should pay four times the worth of the lamb. Then Nathan drops the hammer with the, you are the man, speech, and the punishment and the correction follows. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel 12. While David should have died for his sins, God spared him and kept him as king. And in this we see the grace and mercy and the patience of God. But make no mistake about it, there is fallout. And it's in his family. Before we get too deep into that, look a bit further at this idea of paying for the sins four times over and how it mirrors Joseph Kennedy's situation, too. Joe lived in a greedy, lust-for-power, adulterous life and lost four children in tragic circumstances— two by plane crash, two by assassination— not to mention the other unfortunate circumstances which exist in the family. He paid fourfold. David lost four children in tragic circumstances. The child born to Bathsheba out of adultery dies. Amnon violates his half-sister and is subsequently murdered by Absalom. And similarly to Rosemarie, due to no fault of her own, Tamar lives out her days in an isolated state. Absalom is then killed by Joab, and remember Joab's a nephew of David. And Adonijah is killed by Solomon shortly after David's death, as Adonijah makes a second attempt to usurp the throne from Solomon. David paid four times over for his sins by the death of his sons. Notwithstanding the fallout above and beyond premature death with the family, that is to say the impact of David's sins on other children and concubines and wives, especially those wives that were violated by Absalom. In one of the previous episodes I'd made a comment, and it bears repeating here, but one of the most dangerous places to live in Jerusalem was being in David's family and in the royal palace with all the power plays happening as the sons vie for the throne? Think about that for a moment. What happens to Ahinoam when her son Amnon is murdered, and David spends so much time and capital trying to embrace Absalom, the offending son? And how does she survive when Absalom makes his run at the throne? I mean, mentally. How does she keep her sanity when the man she is married to embraces the son who's killed hers? And that dynamic plays out for several other wives as well. There isn't much mentioned about this intrafamily conflict. However, one quick glimpse is when Adonijah makes his coup attempt. You see him gather some of the sons of the family, but specifically excludes Solomon and Bathsheba. In a quick read of the text, you may have run over this, but this isn't an oversight on Adonijah's part. It's an intentional coup each person selected specifically, and there appears to be a clear understanding that there was an appointment on Solomon. He was the favored child and the heir apparent. And Adonijah clearly leaves him out of the attempt. And when Bathsheba hears of the coup, her plea to David exposes the depths of the conflict and highlights the curse. From First Kings one Verses 17 through 21 in the message. My master, she said, you promised me in God's name, your son Solomon will be king after me and sit on my throne. And now look what's happened. Adonijah has taken over as king and my master, the king, doesn't even know it. He has thrown a huge coronation feast, cattle and grain fed heifers and sheep, inviting all the king's sons, the priest Abiathar and Joab, head of the army but your servant Solomon was not invited. My master, the king, every eye in Israel is watching you to see what you'll do, to see who will sit on the throne of my master, the king, after him. If you fail to act, the moment you're buried, my son Solomon and I are as good as dead. Now take that conflict and multiply it by an unknown number of wives and concubines and at least 18 male children. Knowing this, I wouldn't ride in a chariot with any of them. This phrase, Sins of the Father, has been thrown around a lot, but it's also the title of a biography of Joseph Kennedy. At the same time, its basic life application can be applied to the situation with David. The difference between David and Joe, however, is that God was clear that David's repentant heart would save him in the long run. Earlier I mentioned that we saw God's grace, mercy, and patience in sparing David's life. At the same time, David is by no means off the hook. Here is the curse, or consequence. I love how teachers and some parents use this term nowadays. If you do that, you'll receive a consequence. Go to the corner. Anyhow, I'm getting off track here, but when David receives his consequence, it is brutal. It is important to remember that at its core is one phrase from God, Quote, because you have despised me, end quote. And here's that punishment in its entirety quote, from this time on, your family will live by the S word, I mean, sword. Um, uh, hooked on po- un- hooked on Pahonics, po- uh, where wh- could it- from-, from me? Anytime I can work in a little Brian Regan into the podcast, it's a total bonus. Anyhow, from this time on, your family will live by the sword, because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife as your own. This is what the Lord says, Because of what you have done, I will cause your household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it in secret, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all israel then david confessed i have sinned against the lord and nathan replied yes but the lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin nevertheless because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the lord by doing this your child will die you can find that in second samuel 12 verses 10 to 14 We have to deal with the fact that our sins have consequence. And this is not in conflict with the fact that we are forgiven of our sin. David's life is a live example of this. He was forgiven, spared death, yet a pretty steep consequence had to be paid. And the painful truth is that not only do we have to deal with the consequence of our sin, but so do those around us. Murder and adultery wasn't David's only error, though. David set up his family from the start in some pretty bad ways. If you read Deuteronomy 17, and I'll leave that for you to read in its entirety on your own time, but the essence of it is that Moses lays out some guidelines for the king. And they were supposed to write out the book of the law in their own hand and under the guidance of the Levites. And they were to always have it in their possession and to read it daily so as not to forget what the Lord had commanded. Additionally, The king was not to have a harem. There's no indication as to whether or not David had the scroll with him at all times, thus violating that instruction. However, he obliterates the issue of having multiple wives. Earlier this week, my dad sent me an interesting quote from Luis Palau. And it's fitting here to give credit where credit's due. My mom and dad are a sounding board for me for a lot of what's presented here on the podcast, and their feedback has been incalculable and much appreciated. Thank you, guys. I love you. Anyhow, back to the quote from Luis Palau provided by my dad in reference to David and his wives. Quote, If David had applied the same principle to his domestic life, how different his family history might have been. David committed his military decisions to the Lord but neglected to consult God regarding marriage. He simply didn't pray about the women in his life, end quote. Whatever label you want to put on it, David set the stage when he took on multiple lives, which, at a minimum, would have had basic consequences, basic difficulties, basic relational conflicts inherent to that family dynamic. Now, layer on top of that, the sin with Bathsheba, and the curse that follows, and you have an absolute mess. Next week, we'll get into the particulars of David's dealing with his kids on a personal level. But for today, let me wrap it up with this thought. One of the beauties of the Bible is that it pulls the curtain back on the sins of the biblical fathers. This is not to mock or humiliate them. It's to create an example to make sure that we don't follow in their steps. Make no mistake about it, God stands ready to forgive, and our eternity is secure. At the same time, what we sow in this life, we also reap in this life. And David's life is evidence of that. But God was with him in the midst of the consequences and curse. But you can't sow corn and expect watermelons. You can't do curls at the gym and expect your calves to get big. You can't train for the scholar's bowl and expect to be competitive in ping-pong or pickleball or any other net sport. You can't bring turmoil into your family and expect peace. Paul put it this way in Galatians 6, verse 7. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live to satisfy their own sinful natures will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. And verse 9 would be my encouragement to you for this week. Let's not get tired of doing good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Keep in mind what Paul teaches here, that the same way in which a curse or a consequence affects you and those around you, so does a blessing. So make a commitment to sow righteousness and blessing and never lose sight of the truth of David's life and the simplicity of Paul's writing. You will reap what you sow and move from a title like Sins of the Father to Blessings of the Father. This has been Something to Gnaw on and the goal of the podcast is to have listeners come to know God in a deeply personal and experiential way. To accomplish this, I hope you will dig into the scriptures in this story further and gnaw on both its deep truths and its applications in your life. You can find the references in the transcript. Until next week, God bless.